Hello. My name is Dr. Mercurio Arborea, and I am the founder of the Arborea Institute. Through our unique blend of benign pharmacology, sensory therapy, and energy sculpting, we can guide you to a new, better, happier you. You're about to embark on a great journey. Let the new age of enlightenment begin. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea. A new world order. It's no longer a theory. What I'm about to say is fact. The secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret. They have planned and are now leading us into a one-world communist government. Welcome useless eaters to the Odd Man Out podcast, where we talk about hidden history, deep political policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the Odd Man. Welcome. The affirmative task we have now is, uh, is to actually... Um, uh, create uh, uh, a new world order. Public policy could itself become the captain of a scientific, technological elite. And when that first cocaine was smuggled in on a ship, it may as well have been a deadly bacteria so much as it hurt the body, the soul of our country. But take my word for it, this scourge will stop. Well, you heard it there, friends. He's going to end the scourge. The scourge stops now. Not going to do it. Not going to do it. Read my lips. No new taxes. It wouldn't be prudent. Wouldn't be prudent. And if we have that new world order, and we will, you know, you can't believe anything these guys say, especially an ex-CIA chief. Anyway, the guy, probably the main guy behind Iran-Contra, the guy who said that he didn't know, he did not remember where he was when JFK was assassinated. George Herbert Walker Bush saying that he's going to end the scourge on drugs when he was behind the cocaine smuggling into the United States and the crack epidemic. It's, it's just unbelievable, guys. They talk out of both sides of their mouths. And it's not just the right, of course, it's the left as well. And the deeper you get into these secret societies and institutions, you realize it's both sides. It's, it's one bird with two wings. And that doesn't mean that every single representative is in on this, of course. But, you know, your representatives are, for the most part, in government to build themselves up and to network for future business endeavors, to set themselves up, to set their relatives up, to set their friends up. It's all about networking and joining these groups. And that's the way people have been doing it for years and years and probably centuries is they get these groups. They form these groups together and they're more powerful in groups and they can control things and they can as I said, network, and they can uh, make connections and, and look out for one another and, and help each other financially and in all kinds of different ways. So anyway, today I'm, I'm really looking forward to this one, okay? 
This is about a group who sprang out of the Cecil Rhodes Roundtables, and they were established just a few months after Cecil Rhodes passed away. I'm talking about the Pilgrim Society. As you heard in the intro with stuff they don't want you to know, you know the gist of it. What people mainly think is it is a society that was put together, a group that was put together of these uber elites to further the basically Cecil Rhodes plan of having the Brits take over the world. And so a lot of people think that America is still controlled by the Brits. Now, I'm not saying that I'm all in on that. I'm still trying to decide this whole thing. But I do think this is a very interesting subject, and uh, it's it's hard to find information on this. You really, really got to put the time in. So I'm going to be playing excerpts from a guy named Charles Savoy, who's probably the premier investigator on this. He is a silver speculator, and he's been doing work on the Pilgrim Society of Great Britain and the Pilgrim Society of the U.S. or United States for years. And so he has just endless amounts of information on there. And I did, I was able to find some of my own links, uh, but I spent quite a bit of time on it and nothing really implicating them to anything too seedy, but you can tell that they still have quite a bit of sway. And of course, if you listen to Charles, he says they control everything. They're higher than the Council on Foreign Relations. And uh, I looked back into the uh, 13 Bloodlines of the Illuminati by Fritz Springmeier, and he's got quite a bit about them in his book. Uh, he mentions mo mainly just the members. Apparently, there hasn't been a new members list since, I think, 1980 or something like that. They have to leak these members lists, and they're private, so it's not like you can go on Bilderberg or uh, the Council on Foreign Relations or the Trilateral Commission and see who are members at any given time. And I don't know if there's really any laws or stipulations for those groups I just mentioned having to put all their members online or not. And even if there were, these guys control a lot, so I don't know if they'd even have to go by any of the laws anyway. So there may be members that we'll never know about that are in these groups. But anyway, I think this is really, I think you're going to dig this and make you, I think it'll kind of bring some new information into your world and uh, kind of uh, make you think a little bit about these secret societies and secretive institutions. And it makes a lot of sense if you listen to Charles and the other researchers and I have put an absolute ton of notes and links in the show notes. So I ask you to please, please check those out because I spend a lot of time doing that for people who want to look further into it. And, um, you know, with that being said, I think we'll just get into it and I'll be popping in from time to time to put in my own two cents worth and uh, we'll just go from there. So let's do this, guys. Introducing the Pilgrim Society. So in Dennis L. Cuddy's book, The Globalists, he's got a quote from E.C. Newth's Empire of the City, written in 1946. It says, in 1903, the Pilgrim Society is formed. The Pilgrims of the United States will be formed six months later. In E.C. Newth's Empire of the City, one will read, The political and financial organization centered in this area of London, known as the City, operates as a supergovernment of the world, and no incident occurs in any part of the world without its participation in some form. 
Its pretensions are supported in the United States by the Secret International Pilgrim Society, sponsor of Cecil Rhodes' One World Government Ideology, which was launched about 1897. Nicholas Murray Butler will be the president of the Pilgrims of the United States. In another quote from Robin Brown, The Secret Society, Cecil John Rhodes' Plan for a New World Order, he says, In 1903, the cartel created the Pilgrim Society, with chapters in New York and London. The purpose of the new clandestine organization was to further the plans of the New World Order as conceived by Cecil Rhodes. Lord Nathan Rothschild was a member of the Society of the Elect, which had been created by Rhodes to bring the globe under a control of the New World Order. All right. I'll read a little bit here from Killing the Planet about the Pilgrim Society. It says the London chapter of the Pilgrim Society, which was established under Lord Alfred Milner, was composed almost entirely of members of the Society of the Elect, the secret society created, of course, by Cecil John Rhodes and Nathan Rothschild to forge a new world order. Lord Milner had risen in rank and privilege to become the first governor of the Transvaal and the Orange Free State in South Africa and the administrator of the Rhodes Scholarships. The pilgrims included Lord Roseberry, Lord Brand, Lord Reginald Brett, author Lord Balfour, probably related to Lord Balfour from the Balfour Declaration, Albert Lord Grey and Lord Rothschild, along with John Jacob Astor, the New York real estate magnate Alfred Bayet, or Bate, Rhodes' partner in the diamond business, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of Sherlock Holmes, Henry Kerr, 11th Marquess of Lothian, and the British Ambassador to the United States, H.G. Wells, noted novelist and historian, and Jan Smuts, legal advisor to Cecil Rhodes, and future Prime Minister of the Union of South Africa, and Lord Nathan Rothschild, the elite group met monthly at the Carlton Hotel. The New York chapter, it says, the New York branch, which met at the Waldorf Historia, was established, of course, by J.P. Morgan. It boasted such members as John D. Rockefeller, Andrew Carnegie, Jacob Schiff, former U.S. President Grover Cleveland, future President William Howard Taft, Mark Twain, Elihu Root, Thomas W. Lamont, Percy Rockefeller, William Rockefeller, Ogden Mills Reed, Otto Kahn, Andrew Mellon, W.B. Whitney, Cornelius Vanderbilt, Vincent Astor, Mortimer Schiff, Frank Vanderlip, Henry Davidson, Charles D. Norton, Benjamin Strong, Nelson Aldridge of the Aldridge Plan and Federal Reserve, and of course Paul Warburg. The fact that the Pilgrims were controlled by the Rothschild money cartel was verified by the presence of Jacob Schiff and Paul Warburg. Warburg, a prominent member of the Warburg Banking Consortium in Germany, which was allied to the House of Rothschild, had married Nina Loeb, the daughter of one of the founders of Kuhn and Loeb and Company, a financial firm tightly connected to Rothschild. The incredible importance of this exclusive dining club to the future of America became clear in 1910 when prominent pilgrims, including Warburg, Vanderlip, Davison, Norton, Strong, and Aldridge set off for Jekyll Island off the coast of Georgia to plan the formation of the Federal Reserve System. 
it goes on to say, and I think that a lot of this is from uh, Joel Vanderrazen. He has got a lot of stuff online. So, and I've put his links in the show notes, of course, too. But uh, he's probably the second most researched on this subject. And I probably butchered his name. Uh, anyway, he says here, The pilgrims from London and New York societies were welcomed guests at each other's clubs and sharing each other's effort to advance a concept they called the New World Order. The meaning of this phrase was clarified by William Lyon Mackenzie King, the Premier of Canada, in his dinner address to the New York Pilgrims in 1912. King envisioned a future in which the world would be united in peace and harmony under the Anglo-American alliance. When victory and peace came, he prophesied, the peoples of the British Commonwealth and of the United States would be united more closely than ever, as all the nations who have united in the defense of freedom would remain united in the defense of mankind. The meetings were held in secret. No guests were allowed to attend. No minutes were kept. No financial records were disclosed. Proof of the commitment of members to the cause of their society came in 1919, when the U.S. pilgrim Irving T. Bush plunked down the funding for the Bush House in downtown London, cut from Portland stone at a cost of $20 million. It was at the time the most expensive building in the world. To dispel any doubts about the purpose of the building, Bush commissioned the erection of a large statue at its entrance of two semi-naked men holding aloft the Torch of Liberty, which brandishing two swords one sword was emblazoned with lions and the other with eagles. The inscription read, To the Friendship of English-Speaking Peoples. Thirty-seven years after its founding, an obscure American journalist took notice of the clandestine club. In 1940, Sir Uncle Sam, Knight of the British Empire, a book that sold fewer than 500 copies, John T. Whiteford wrote, There are several curious things about these pilgrim functions. In the first place, there is present at the dinners an array of notables such as it would be impossible to bring together under one roof for any other purpose and by any other society. Among the guests were John D. Rockefeller and J.P. Morgan, Thomas W. Lamont, and other members of the House of Morgan. We are entitled to know what the Pilgrim Society is, what it stands for, and who these powerful pilgrims are that can call out the great to hear a British ambassador expound to Americans the virtues of a united domestic front. End quote. The lack of public awareness of the workings of the Pilgrim Society through the years remained mind-boggling, since its members would come to include Harry Truman, John Foster Dulles and Alan Dulles, General George Marshall of the Marshall Plan, W. Averill Harriman, Joseph P. Kennedy, father of the Kennedys, Henry Luce, founder of Time Magazine, Henry Kissinger, Gerald Ford, Winston Churchill, Zbigniew Brzezinski, General Alexander Haig, William Paley, the CBS president, Walter Cronkite, the most trusted man in America, Sandra Day O'Connor, Elliot Richardson, George H.W. Bush, Paul Volcker, George W. Bush, and David Rockefeller. It goes on to say that uh, John D. Rockefeller didn't really fit into the group at first. He didn't have all those different uh, beliefs and stuff. But uh, once he got in, he really took to it and uh, seemed to really go power hungry even more so after that. And I think I've mentioned that in a previous episode, but anyway, worth mentioning, I think. 
Your Excellencies, the Lords and Gentlemen, I give you the toast of the King. His Lord, the Excellent Majesty, the King. I'm going to ask you to drink singly and in the order of the alphabet the toast of the heads of state represented at the Naval Conference. I give you the toast of the President of the United States of America. The President of the United States of America. I give you the toast of the President of the French Republic. The President of the French Republic. I give it to the Emperor of Japan. His Majesty, the Emperor of Japan. My Lord Archbishop, honored guests, the Prime Minister, your Excellencies, my lords and gentlemen, pray silence for the Right Honourable Viscount Ray of Paladin, Most Noble Order of the Garter. Your Excellencies, the Lord Archbishop, Prime Minister, and gentlemen, and lords and gentlemen, the pilgrims, as you know, are an Anglo-American institution. But tonight, they emphasize the international character. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. Here are the facts. The United States officially declared independence in 1776. The United Kingdom recognized the independence of the United States by signing the Treaty of Paris on September 3, 1783. While these countries had a tense relationship for decades afterward, this treaty established the United States as a sovereign entity. At least, that's the official story. For some fringe researchers, the United States never really achieved independence, and the leaders of the U.S. are still secretly following orders from the ruling family of the United Kingdom. Here's where it gets crazy. According to Netherlands-based researcher Joel van der Reijden, the United Kingdom continues to wield an enormous amount of influence on U.S. policymaking through several private, elite organizations. Van der Reijden claims that a little-known organization called the Pilgrim Society is evidence of this undue influence. Allegedly founded in 1902, this British-American society aims to promote goodwill, good fellowship, and everlasting peace between the United States and Great Britain. There's also a British wing of this organization, and members of the British royal family have been patrons of this society since its inception. If van der Reijden's partial membership list is reliable, then the Pilgrim society is certainly prestigious and counts some of the most influential people in the United States among its members. The Rockefellers are listed there, as well as Henry Kissinger and numerous members of influential industrial families. Here's the brunt of his argument. He believes that the Pilgrim Society functions as a way for the British and American elite, almost exclusively white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, to gather and deliberate in private without public oversight. 
To prove this case, he extensively traces the connections between members of the Pilgrim Society and the worlds of mass media, intelligence agencies, and banking institutions. He also ties the Pilgrim Society to an attempted overthrow of the U.S. government by a cabal of super-wealthy families. This last accusation is based on a true story, one of the most widely ignored conspiracies in United States history. In 1934, retired General Smedley Butler told Congress that he was approached by representatives of ruling families in the United States who sought to overthrow President Franklin Roosevelt and institute a fascist government. Congress believed Butler and admitted his story added up, but strangely, or predictably enough, not one member of these influential families was prosecuted or questioned about their alleged treason. According to van der Reichten's research, the folks coordinating this attempted overthrow were pilgrims. And van der Reichten isn't the only one arguing for a conspiracy. The controversial activist Lyndon LaRouche also believed that the British ruling families exerted undue influence on U.S. politics. At the heart of these claims regarding the Pilgrim Society is the belief that an Anglo-American establishment is working to steer American business, politics, and society toward its own aims. These allegations haven't convinced the mainstream media. Skeptics could easily claim that this is confirmation bias, meaning that the conspiracy researchers can simply see what they want to see and ignore evidence that doesn't fit their opinion. Yet for theorists, the lack of widespread reporting isn't just proof that the Pilgrim Society controls the United States mass media. It's also proof that there's something they don't want you to know. Just last night, I finished doing an update on an organization that is so secret that they can get away with literal murder and nobody knows it's them. Now, let me ask you, you're all activists. Have you ever heard of the Pilgrims Society? Any hands? All right. Well, their patron is none other than the queen of this country and her husband, I believe, or but certainly the queen. And I did, re I did publish something about them um, that I received from a Dutch man back in 2009, but it was pretty benign, and he didn't know that John Kennedy had been assassinated, let alone the, or he didn't know why John Kennedy had been assassinated. And so I put an editor's note at that time about that piece of history um, when I published that piece. And then in January 2013, I did a blog post where I listed the names of these evils um, on one of my blogs. But there's a man that's done research on the Pilgrim Society all his adult life, and I think, I think he's around in his 60s now. He lives in Texas, and his name is Charles Savoy. And aside from the fact that he doesn't seem to realize that America is a, is a colony of Great Britain to this very day, he's done some brilliant research on these, these people. So what I have done is I have gone through all his writing on it. And just last night, about half past nine, I finished going through all these PDFs that he's got um, on a website ever since 2013, when I did the last of what I did on the Pilgrim Society. 
And I've got that ready now to put the dates of birth and dates of death of whatever ones have died. But there are names in it that you will recognize instantly. For example, David Cameron, Hillary and Bill Clinton, George Herbert Walker Bush, George W. Bush, um, uh, Steve Forbes of Forbes magazine. But the... Soros? Soros, yes. Yes, Soros is in there. And also, um, the man in Texas seems to think that Jeff Bezos of Amazon is in the Pilgrim Society now. Um, and people that are titled in this country, the honorable, you know, anyone who is an ambassador to another country. Um, every single Archbishop of Canterbury has been in it, including um, Jeremy, um, or no, Justin Welby, who's the current Archbishop of Canterbury. And their aim is the one world government. Now, do you know what the one world government is? For any who don't, it's the Dark Ages. Now, I know you agree that you don't want to live through a Dark Ages. I know I certainly don't. So when John, my, my beloved, told me about this meeting today, I said, oh, John, we've got to go. We've got to make as many people. All right, guys, you with me so far? Well, I hated to play such long clips, but I feel like I have to really put a good background up for what we're going to be talking about today. And so the lady mentioned Charles Savoy and, of course, uh, stuff they don't want you to know. They mentioned Vander Ragen. And so we're going to be looking at both of those guys' works on the Pilgrim Society. So right now we'll go to some clips of Charles Savoy on these different talk shows and kind of get what he's talking about because he's written preeminent work on it, as I mentioned earlier, just tons and tons and tons of stuff on it. And so he's the best source to go to. So here we go. So 11 years later, no, excuse me, it's more like seven years later, I was reading a book by somebody named Gary Allen about Nixon, the man behind the mask, and he mentioned a mentor of Richard Nixon by the name of Elmer Bokes, P-O-B-S-T, who was the head of Warner Lambert Pharmaceutical. And Gary Allen said just one thing about it and didn't elaborate. He says, Bokes is a member of the highly secret Pilgrim Society, which is even closer to the inner circle of the conspiracy than the CFR. Well, oh my, that, that just turn me upside down. I, I'm like, I've got to find out everything I can about this thing. Well, I did. I set out on a quest to find out everything I could about them. And uh, in May of 1979, I went to a university speech at Texas Christian University in Fort Worth, given by the then British ambassador to the UN, Sir Ivor Seward Richard, S-E-W-A-R-D was his middle name, and it turned out that his maternal grandfather was our Secretary of State, William Seward, who made the Alaska Purchase from Russia in 1867. Now, the Pilgrim Society represents the last great secret of modern history. It represents 
history's greatest influence network. It represents history's biggest investment trust. It represents the exploitative dynastic families of the centuries old worldwide British Empire who amalgamated in this nearly unknown group with the so-called robber barons of the 19th century in railroads, oil, coal, steel, banking, land, ocean-going shipping. And the person who had the inspiration to form this organization was Cecil Rhodes, who formed the Golden Diamond Trust in South Africa. And he also created the Rhodes Scholars. Well, it's always been members of the Pilgrims Society as trustees of the Rhodes Trust in Oxford, England, who control the Rhodes Scholars. And here's a little quote from the Review of Reviews, New York, May 1902, pages 556 to 559. I'm not going to read it all, just a little bit. The only thing feasible to carry this idea out is a secret society gradually absorbing the wealth of the world to be devoted to such an object, and that object reuniting the United States and Great Britain as a base for world government. There is Hirsch with 20 millions very soon across the unknown borders, struggling in the dark to know what to do with his money. And so one might go on ad infinitum. What a scope and what a horizon of work for the next two centuries, the best energies of the best people in the world, perfectly feasible, but needing an organization. For it is impossible for one human atom to contemplate anything, much less such an idea as this, requiring the devotion of the best souls of the next 200 years. There are three essentials. One, the plan duly weighed and agreed to. Two, the first organization. Three, the seizure of the wealth necessary, end quote. Of the Rhodes Scholars, Rhodes himself declared, I am on the lookout for those who will do the governing of the nations in the years that are to come. Then there was a book in 1946 called uh, The Empire of the City, World Superstate, privately published. Page 9, we find the Pilgrims Society described as the most powerful international society on earth. The Pilgrims is so wrapped in silence that few Americans know even of its existence since 1903. There was a book put out officially by the Society in London in 1943, Pilgrim Partners, 40 Years of British-American Fellowship. And on page 85, he said, the cooperation of many minds has been necessary to give the Pilgrims the assured position the Society occupies. What is their assured position? The world fiat money power. Now keep in mind, this is 11 years before Bilderberg even existed. The Christian Science Monitor, April 19, 1941, page 4, Anglo-American Pilgrim's Progress stated, to go through the list would reveal a dossier of some of the greatest men of our time. I mentioned Gary Allen. He also had something in American Opinion Magazine, September 1970, page 15. He says, the elitist Pilgrim Society seeks to merge the United States into the British Commonwealth as a base for world government. The major international banking firms, that is, billion banks, on both sides of the Atlantic are well represented in the Pilgrim Society. Uh, that article was titled, A Look at Establishment Newspapers. He had a follow-up about tele tele television networks in October of that year, 1970. He said, the Pilgrim Society, sometimes called the world's most secret organization, 
has as its goal the reuniting of England and America. And later in that article, he says, the super-secret Pilgrim Society, whose official logo is entwined American and British flags, is dedicated to merging Britain and America. I found an Italian website that said, the Pilgrim's Society remained hidden until relatively recent years to identify the apex of power. In testimony delivered in the House of Representatives of the U.S. Congress on August 19, 1940, by Montana Congressman Thorkelson, a silver advocate, regarding the Pilgrim's Society and its intent to merge us into a British-controlled world empire, stated this. There are several curious things about these pilgrim functions. In the first place, there is present at these dinners an array of notables such as would be difficult to bring together under one roof for any other purpose and by any other society. This again was 14 years before Bilderberg even existed. Congressman Thorkelson in the same discourse referred to an address by Joseph H. Choate, Vanderbilt family operative, big railroad dynasty, one of the founders of the Pilgrims organization, as saying that those who would many years later celebrate the start of the second century of the Pilgrims Society in 2003, quote, will have cause to bless their fathers that they founded this society and kept the world on the right track. Go ahead. Go ahead. The, the, the Pilgrims, so you've established there is a, there is a Pilgrim Society from your research from, I mean, many, many publications. Uh, for many actions that they may have done, uh, where as as far as they are now, because we hear about all these different secret societies, I've heard about them from many people, and I just I'm trying to figure out where where where, where are they affecting the average person's life like right now? Because I think that's when a lot of listeners listen to this and they go, "Look, we can't do anything about these societies. They're already deeply embedded in all of government, in all of finance, in." In every aspect of our lives, they already won. Is there anything anyone can even do about this? Well, okay. The reason that I'm on to the Pilgrims organization in particular, hey, I can give you a talk about Bilderberg. I can give you a talk about the Wolf's Head Society at Yale, Spacehead Society at Cornell, the former Encuentros del Siglo Doble X, which was a hemispheric equivalent to Bilderberg some years ago, Center for Inter-American Relations. I've been into all that. But the Pilgrims are the capstone organization. They uh, they not only represent the British Empire wealth and the North American robber baron wealth, but the English branch especially is intermarried with old European royal houses tracing back close to 2,000 years. And you want to know what we can do about it? Well, if you'll notice, you can get online to the Council on Foreign Relations, which is their primary subsidiary organization, and you can access a membership roster there. Bilderberg has an official site. They have a roster that's publicly viewable. Same thing with the Trilateral Commission. Well, all these groups are just fronts for this other one, and the Pilgrims stand alone in a number of aspects, and one of those is that they do not release lists to the public. However, there have been a number of leaked lists that we've been able to find, such as in the genealogical archives of the New York Public Library, and that was quite an undertaking. And so you want to know what we can do about it. Well, the first thing we can do about it is to be aware that they're there. And Bilderberg started putting out rosters because they were under a lot of pressure to do that. The Pilgrim Society has not been under pressure to do that. 
and we need to pressure them to do that. And so that would be, in my opinion, the first step toward beginning to neutralize them is to know about them. And so we need legislation. We need um, legislation to audit the Fed. We need to get rid of the Fed. We need to allow competing currencies and let the public, let the marketplace decide which currencies they want to use. And we don't have a free market. And isn't the isn't the public too dumb to to even fight these people? No. No, I have a little bit more faith in them than that. Um, but you wanted to I know. I don't what, know. Have you been they, to a mall recently? Yeah, I know. I know what you're saying. They they have professional sports teams. They have uh, Dr. Oz. They have Oprah Winfrey. They have Hollywood and all these other uh, baseball teams, professional wrestling. Vince McMahon, he's probably a member. Okay, he's big enough to be a member. He's in those circles of the WWE. And they have all this distracting the public. And I understand what you're saying, but in uh, 2012 over in London, they had one of their meetings, and I've got the PDF uh, that came out of that, and they were ridiculing my findings. So I've got their attention. And if more websites would start covering this, we could pressure them to start posting a list. For instance, in 2002 and 2003, they put out some very short-run books, Centennial Historical Editions, The Pilgrims of Great Britain, 2002, The Pilgrims of the U.S., 2003. They're difficult to come by, and uh, but I have them both, and I have several of their other volumes from the 1940s. And um, But if you have one of these books, pay close attention. They don't post a roster in there from 2002 and 2003. Now, what's keeping them from doing that? If you go to their website, oh, well, let me back up a second. In January 2011, I came out with silversteelers.net. And the following June, I was surprised to see they replied to that without naming my site. But they put up pilgrimsociety.org, which is from, from England. You know, the American members are the junior partners of this thing, no matter how big they are. Big. Yeah, they're the, they're the junior partners. So, But they don't post a list. They don't post a roster. They're hiding something. Okay, so how how involved are they? I mean, is this all secretive people that we don't see, or are we talking Bernanke and and Yellen and well, President Obama? Well, well, let me let me say say this: uh, uh, the nineteen fifty seven executive committee that during the Eisenhower years, and also a briefer rundown on the nineteen eighty executive committee. But you're asking. What part of our lives do they affect? They affect everything. They they run the Federal Reserve. I put out something called uh, Who Controls the Gold Stealing New York Fed Bank? And you can find it at Morgan's site, and it's giving you a blow-by-blow. Everybody at the Jekyll Island, Georgia meeting that led to the creation of the Fed was a member except one person, and that was the stenographer named A. Piat Andrew. They're all members. They've all, all been identified, documented as members from the 1914 roster, which we were very lucky to get. And um, they created the Great Depression by dumping Indian silver onto the world market. They See, the Far East, their money was silver. 
for centuries. India, China, the rest of the Far East, their currency was silver. And the British came in with opium and turned 45 million Chinese into opium addicts. And they said, hey, the only way you can pay us is silver. And so they sucked a lot of silver out of China. And then the Silver Purchase Act in 1934 sucked an additional possibly another billion ounces out of China. I know one instance they sucked 565,855,000 ounces. That's a Treasury Department figure posted in the Commercial and Financial Chronicle. I've got all this in the Silver Steelers. It's a chronology of how they caused the Great Depression. The crash in 1929 had almost nothing to do with it. All that was about was recovering their payrolls and hurting uh, new rich that were not part of this circle. But the reason the fall in the price of silver caused the depression is the British crashed the price of silver to 24 and a half cents an ounce in February 1931. And at that time, we actually had robust export industries to the Far East. So did England and Europe. So when the value, the purchasing power of their money was killed, by the British dumping an excess of silver onto the world markets, it killed their purchasing power, and we had idled millions of workers over here. That's what caused the mass unemployment was the British attack on silver, moving the world off of silver gradually, gradually, gradually more and more, until finally in 1968 in June, they halted the redemption or conversion of silver certificates. You couldn't go get silver for them anymore. This has all come out of the Pilgrim's Society, and these other groups are just splinters of it. All right, guys, I know that was long, but that was one of Charles Savoy's appearances on a show called Crush the Street, and it's a money show, and they do speculations on silver and gold and things like that. And he's appeared on there several times, and I'll put the, sh- I'll put the links in the show notes. Like I said, it's this, this show is going to have so many notes and links that I really hope you'll take advantage of it. I'm trying to put the time in to really give any person who wants to investigate further the ammunition to do so. And so I think what I'll do right now is I'll go to one of Charles Savoy's pages and kind of look at the beginnings of the Pilgrim Society. But before I do that, I just want to let you know that I'm in talks with a fellow by the name of Michael McKibben. He's probably just as knowledgeable about the Pilgrim Society as Charles Savoy. And Michael's got a very unique story. He has been suing Facebook and the government for almost 20 years, or maybe it's been 20 now, uh, because they stole his technology. And he has proof, and he... He wasn't even into politics before this happened, but when it happened, it's Facebook came out and he was developing or had developed this technology for businesses to do the exact same things, the exact same platform as Facebook and even proved it in court, according to him. And uh, he realized as he started digging in to what was going on with the trials and stuff that a lot of the judges had stock in Facebook and there was all kinds of shady ties here and there. And that just put him on basically a lifelong search to do work on uncovering the new world order. It led right to the new world order. And and he believes that the crown is indeed in charge and are trying to, well, maybe not in charge. I think in his eyes, he thinks that they're almost 
finished with the program and they're about to take back America. But uh, he has the names and the dates. He's pulled out information that is just unbelievable, like Charles Savoy. And I have corresponded with him through email, but I, I don't think he does a lot of shows. But I'm excited to say he has agreed to come on. He just hasn't given me a date yet. And when he does, we're going to talk about the Pilgrim Society. But we're also going to talk about his battle against Facebook and against the U.S. government from stealing his technology and how it led him on this journey to investigate all these different connections to people and how it led right over to the UK and to the crown. So that will be a later date. I'll let you know as soon as he gives me a date and we will plan it out. I am looking very forward to it. I hope it uh, comes through. So I'm going to take from this article here that is based on Charles Savoy's work. It's from patriotsfortruth.files.wordpress.com, and I'll put that in my show notes. Okay, uh, I'm not going to read the whole intro part because you don't really need to read the whole thing, but I will read the first part here, and it's got a quote from Cecil Rhodes from the Last Will and Testament of Cecil Rhodes, and it was written the year he died, by his best friend, William T. Stead. And I have that book on PDF form if anybody wants it. Uh, and it's, this is a quote from Cecil Rhodes when he's first really deciding to plan to make the secret societies or the, the secret tip societies like the Council on Foreign Relations and Chatham House and the Society of the Elect and all that. He says, what an awful thought it is that if we had not lost America, or even now we could arrange the present members of the United States Assembly and our House of Commons, the peace of the world is secured for all eternity. We could hold federal parliament five years at Washington and five years at London. The only thing feasible to carry this out is a secret society, gradually absorbing the wealth of the world to be devoted to such an object. Okay, and then I'll read just a piece here. So Savoy's taking excerpts from a an article. Well, I don't know. It might have been a book. It says here, Cecil John Rhodes, The American Monthly Review of Reviews, New York, May 1902, pages 556 and 557, describes the life's work and globalist ambitions of the South African diamond cartelist, Cecil Rhodes, a man financed both by the Crown and the Rothschilds, out of whose wills came the subversive Rhodes Scholars, the Royal Institute of International Affairs in London, the Council on Foreign Relations in New York, and others, all under the concealed supervision of the controlling organization, the Pilgrims of Great Britain and the Pilgrims of the United States, the hidden Senate of the transatlantic rich, super-rich, founded in 1902 and 1903, respectively, drawing into itself the prominent robber baron dynasties of the 19th century and the financiers of centuries-old British Empire. Their last ace in the hole for global control is the United Nations, and if it fails, they fail. So I'm going to read from Charles Savoy's silverstealers.net website. 
and I'm going to skip the intro there, but I will comment on the the logo of the Pilgrims, and they have a man riding a horse. He almost looks like a priest, and he behind him has a giant eagle, which represents America, and then beside him, walking beside the horse, he has a lion, which represents Britain, and underneath it, in Latin, it says, Hic et ubique which means here and everywhere. But Charles says, This secret one, or society, which sprang into existence a few months after Rhodes' death, is the only organization that answers to the descriptions, conceptualizing it in the rarely seen article buried deep on unfrequented library shelves. Notice they admitted to trying to recruit into their ranks wealthy men and take control over the fortunes after their death for their globalist vision. I skipped that part. Their definition of uncivilized parts of the world includes any areas they wish to bring under control by means of World War One, World War Two, regional wars, and the Third World War, which I think is on us now, and I believe it is COVID, but he says, still to come. He wrote this several years ago, by the way. They speak of their judgment that certain nations must depart, meaning cease to exist as sovereign states. That includes all of South America with its silver-producing belts. This presentation won't try to convince the reader that their global reach is still an influence that will override all others, such as China and Russia. They unquestionably do possess the means to start World War III. Is that influence enough? There's no way to know, but it should be supposed that in exporting America's industrial base overseas, they retain ownership and hold vast assets elsewhere. The effort is to convince you of their domestic control over these United States, and by extension, Canada, and if the Northern American Union, North American Union materializes, Mexico as well. There is no threat to your gold and silver ownership remotely as severe as that presented by the Pilgrim Society of the United States based in New York City. You guys have heard me talk about the uh, North American Union that uh, Bill Weld and Heidi Cruz put together for the Council on Foreign Relations. I think it was around 2008, but it might have been a little bit earlier than that. I know it was under George W. Bush. What a scope and what a horizon of work for the next two centuries. The best energies of the best people in the world. Perfectly feasible, but needing an organization for it is impossible for one human atom to contemplate anything, much less such an idea requiring the devotion of the best souls of the next 200 years. There are three essentials. Number one, the plan duly weighed and agreed. Number two, the first organization. Number three, the seizure of the wealth necessary. It says here on page 557, they admit that the year 2002 might be the halfway point for their dream of global Anglophile domination. That's pretty close to 9-11, isn't it? Best souls means most conspiratorial minds. First organization means the Pilgrim Society of London and New York and the seizure of the wealth necessary. Now he goes on to say that... The seizure of the wealth necessary means many planned disasters caused by government actions negatively 
impacting the wealth of non-members and those outside the ranks of such unofficial subsidiary organizations as the Council on Foreign Relations, which has long served as the staffing agency for multiple presidential administrations, especially Joe Biden. The seizure of the wealth necessary means many particulars. The First World War, Britain's attack on the world's silver money system, starting in India in 1926 with the decision of the Royal Commission on Indian Currency, the crash of 1929, facilitated by the Federal Reserve policies, the Great Depression caused by Britain's attack on silver. Britain's attack on gold in September 1931, exacerbating the Depression, seizing gold from American citizens in March 1933, and seizing silver in August 1934 to the extent of 113,031,000 silver ounces, driving China off its silver standard as of November 3, 1935, through the Silver Purchase Act of 1934. FDR's socialist federal agencies, the Second World War, the founding of the United Nations, the Korean War, the ending of silver coinage by the mid-1960s, the Vietnam War, its war manufacturers' windfalls, and all the ensuing major financial dislocations since that time, to the crushing of the Hunt Arab silver play in January 1980, to today's mortgage crisis, yes, this was a while back, around 2008, I think, forcing the middle class into apartments, feudalism, Exploration of industry and jobs, reduced standard of living, food and drug administration tyranny, the anticipation of hyperinflation, and concerns over the potential federal nationalization of precious metals. He goes on to say, it is so to exert against that last eventually, I think he's saying, he goes on to say, it is so important to exert against the last eventually that I present this essay to place this specific elitist organization on public notice that they are now known, a partial summary record of their past attacks on gold and silver money and ownership, and a partial list of specific identified Pilgrim Society members involved over the years, acting to suppress gold and silver as money and against the commodity prices of each, and acting against the citizen ownership of both. And then it says here, on pages 557 and 558, his original conception of his will was to leave the whole of his property without any restrictions to be administered by the sole discretion of the three personal friends. He's talking about Cecil Rhodes, of course. As for eight years, I was one of the three to whom his millions were left in joint tenancy. I have perhaps as good an opportunity of knowing his mind on the matter as anyone. It was while on board the steamer, midway between Cape Town and England, that the idea flashed into his mind of superseding his previous will by another, in which part of his wealth would be set up for administration by trustees for educational purposes. Of course, there comes the Rhodes Scholarships. 
When he first told me about it, the scheme was limited to British colonies. It is admirable, I said, but would it not be still better if you could extend it so as to bring the Americans into it? Mr. Rhodes doubted whether his estate would bear such an extension, with which in principle he entirely concurred. Further examination satisfied him that it could be done, and accordingly the will contains the provisions by which every American state is offered two scholarships, tenable for three years. The person speaking was William T. Stead, Pilgrim Society, whom Lord Norcliffe, Pilgrim Society, described as the greatest living journalist. Page 45, Pilgrims and Pioneers, which features no year of publication, but is an early to mid-1930s production by Sir Harry Britton, founding member of the Pilgrim Society. See chapter 10 of this scarce volume called We Come Into Being, pages 103 and 153. Again, that is called Pilgrims and Pioneers, and I think I found a part of that book on uh, Tragedy and Hope's website, and I put that in the show notes here. Uh, let's see, it says here, I doubt whether Mr. Rhodes quite realized that such an arrangement Americans would receive 50% of more. So he goes on to say here, I doubt whether Mr. Rhodes quite realized that by such an arrangement, Americans would receive 50% more of his benefaction than British colonists. This, however, will probably soon be rectified by his executors, who have absolutely unrestricted ownership of the residue, which probably amounts to a moiety of the which probably amounts to a moiety of the estate, Mr. Rhodes was amenable to my suggestion about the American extension of his scholarship because it so thoroughly jumped with his own ideas. My scholars must all come to my old university. I am on the lookout for those who will do governing of the nations in the years to come. Okay, so, and then he goes on to say here, that President Bill Clinton was Pilgrim Society, and also a Rhodes Scholar. By Byron White, a Supreme Court Justice, 62-93, to 93, was Rhodes Scholar. Alfred Hayes, President of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, Pilgrim Society, was a Rhodes Scholar. And it says also, see, and it says also, see Paper Money Mobster Speaks in the archives. That's uh, Savoy's archives. Trustees of the Rhodes Trust are invariably Pilgrim Society members. The boards of directors of the Council on Foreign Relations are largely Pilgrim Society members. Bilderberg and Trilateral were founded by Pilgrim Society members. Skull and Bones, founded at Yale in 1832 as another British front with opium trade links, in no way has had the degree of influence as have had the Rhodes Scholars. No man I have met regarded wealth excepting as a means by which he could influence men and control the destinies of nations. That's William T. Stead on Rhodes. <clears throat> and that's kind of where you come in with these guys. They just get so rich, like uh, Gates, like Rockefellers. They get so rich that the money's not enough and they have to start controlling the world. Uh, Cecil Rhodes financed by the Rothschilds and the Crown and South African Diamond Cartelization, leading to the De Beers conglomerate, 
De Beers Diamonds, out of whose wills sprang the first organization, the Pilgrim Society of London and New York, referenced in my series, Meet the World Money Powers, and Pilgrims. Those were two series. This society should be of major concern to every metals investor, as they've been controlling silver's destiny as an organization for most of the century. The following chronology is necessary. The following chronology is a necessarily. Uh. The following chronology is necessarily a two-step process forward and one-step backwards progression, as pro. The following chronology is necessarily a two-step forward, one-step backwards progression, as overlapping situations are the inevitable rule. And then he starts with uh, the members. And uh, I won't go through all of them by any means, but I'll, I want you to check this out. But um, let's see here. He's got Lyman Judson Gage, Pilgrim Society charter member. He was the treasury of the secretary in the cabinets of President McKinley and Theodore Roosevelt. Then you got down here, Gage was the first president of the Chicago Bankers Association. See, Chicago men has been corrupt since the beginning of the country, basically, or at least not too long afterwards. He says here, Gage was first president of the Chicago Bankers Association, twice president of the Civic Federation of Chicago, and a trustee of the Carnegie Institute of Washington. Everywhere you look with the Council on Foreign Relations, you find the Carnegie's, the Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation. They are all synonymous. He was a member of the Anti-Silver Stable Money Association. Engaged took the financial editor of the Chicago Tribune. Frank Vanderlip got him into the banking business and his assistant at Treasury. Recall that Pilgrim Society member Vanderlip was at the Jekyll Island, Georgia meeting where the Morgan Rockefeller Pilgrim Society finalized plans for the Federal Reserve System. Uh, there's just too many names to go through because this is getting near the end of the show, my friends. But we are going to continue this. I said there's going to be a, a second part, but I may end up doing a, maybe two more parts because it's just so, to me, it's so interesting because uh, this is said to be going on today. Now, check out the show notes. I found uh, it's very hard to find legitimate official documents, but there's something going on with the ambassadors, the ambassadors from the United States and the ambassadors from England, and they're, they play some kind of role in this. Now, I went on the UK's government website, and I put in Pilgrim Society, uh, and it pulled up a title with Pilgrim Society and ambassadors, but then when you go on it, it's blank. But I did find some official documents, official websites that mentioned the Pilgrims. And uh, I found in the 70s, there was a dinner. They have these dinners once a year, supposedly. And um, the Henry Kissinger was one of the speakers. And it was kind of interesting. He mentioned the nine, the nine a couple of times. I don't know. You hear about the Council of Nine. I think he was talking about the nine countries. But anyway... Uh, you can see from my notes that I've found different Pilgrim Society meetings through the years. There's one documented where Churchill spoke at it. There's one in the 80s where Reagan spoke at it. Uh, I think uh, Roosevelt's wife, I believe, spoke at one. I don't know. I'll have to look back through. I know the Pope spoke at one. I think that was in the 70s, I want to say. Anyway, I thought that was interesting that they have 
had a span of a very long time. I mean, since 1902, that's when the British one was formed. And then the next year, the United States Pilgrim Society, according to this information. But um, it's kind of interesting. I found a newspaper clipping from the New York Times from 1888 mentioning the Pilgrim Society. And I put the link in the notes, but you got to pay to see it. So I didn't bother to pay because I don't want to give any money to them. But I thought that was very interesting because it's documented to have started in 1902, but it may have even been around before then. So uh, with that being said, guys, this has been a long one. Not super long, but, you know, long enough with all this information that I threw at you. And so, like I said, again, please check the show notes. Also, don't forget, I have a Patreon now. So if you want to check out interesting extra stuff over there, I'm throwing up videos and articles that I normally wouldn't post anywhere else and uh, pictures, you know, and stuff like that. So please check that out. And that is patreon.com slash the odd man out. Join the Society of Cryptic Savants. And I want to thank my patrons. Thank you, James. Thank you, Jack Allen, host of Conspiracy or Just a Coincidence. Please listen to his show. It's great. Thank you to Full Metal Keto AF. And thank you to the newest patron, Aaron. You guys rock. Thank you for your support. Also, I want to thank, of course, AlternateCurrentRadio.com. That's where my podcast is, besides the Podbean. And support them, support their shows, listen to their shows. They have other great content, for sure. And also, I want to thank FringeRadioNetwork.com, because they put my show up there, too, as well as a ton of other shows. It's kind of like an aggregate site. It puts tons of shows up there, and it's a good place to go for one source to just get a bunch of shows that are kind of, kind of about conspiracy. So anyway, uh, other than that, I think that wraps up everything. I want to thank you. I want to say cheers and blessings. And remember, their order is not our order. See you guys. <laughs>